Let's pray one more time. Father, we praise you that you comfort us in our hurting. We praise you that you are with us when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And so even as, as Keith just prayed and as we continue uh, to, to feel uh, the dark cloud of loss hanging over us this morning, God, we pray that you would, you would comfort us, you would draw near to us now through your word, that you would help us and give us hope in the fact that, that you have provided a king for us who is faithful to lead every single last one of your sheep home. Lord, even in death, you are faithful to your children. And so we pray that this morning, as we look at your word now, you would fill us with hope, that you would fill us with comfort, that you would even fill us with joy in the midst of our sadness. And we praise you that you are good to us. Help us to taste and to see the goodness this King of glory this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a, a few weeks ago, uh, Charles III was formally coronated as King of the UK. And Coronation Day itself was, was filled with all the pomp and the circumstance that you would expect. The day included a, a procession from, from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey, where the coronation itself happened, and then a procession from Westminster Abbey back to Buckingham Palace, this time with a crown fixed on Charles's head. And if you watched any of the, the coronation, the, the overwhelming scale of these processionals was, was quite a sight to behold. In addition to the thousands of people who lined the streets, thousands of soldiers and, and royal footmen, marching bands, ornately gilded coaches, flag bearers, magnificent horses, all the members, some most of the members of the royal family, I guess, uh, they all, all participated in the procession. There were even over a hundred dogs that took part in this elaborate ceremony. The UK's Ministry of Defense said it was the largest military procession in London since more than 16,000 people took place in Queen Elizabeth's coronation, coronation procession back in 1953, which is just a staggering number of people when you think about it for a 30-minute carriage ride. And at the end of this procession, all those marching, all those marching gathered in the palace gardens to, to give a royal salute and three cheers to the king. And, and then the king and the royal family walked out on the front balcony of of Buckingham Palace, they did their little wave thing, then they turned around, they went inside, closed the door, and everyone went home. You can't help but wonder what it, have, what it would have been like to have been part of that procession that day. What, what, what would it have been like to have, to have marched in those streets, to, to have been the guy driving the carriage uh, that pulled the king and the queen? You wonder, too, what it, what it would have been like to have actually been in the royal family that day, to have actually gotten to go beyond the gates of Buckingham Palace, and to have still been in the king's presence, even after all the ceremonies had ended. Well, in our sermon passage this morning, this is, this is something of the scene that unfolds for us. 
But instead of finding ourselves caught up in the procession of an earthly king, we find ourselves caught up in the procession of the high king of heaven. And instead of finding ourselves on the outside of his courts at the end of it all, we find ourselves invited in, welcomed into the most sacred space of his holy presence. So if you got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 24. So we're going to be in Psalm chapter 24 this morning. So in, in this majestic psalm, we move as if in procession with the King of glory himself. Back in Psalm 2, we saw the Lord coronating his son on Zion, his holy mountain. And now we get the processional as the, the Messiah King marches into the city of Jerusalem, into the temple, and he ascends his throne. And like so many of the Psalms, Psalm 24 is meant to lift our hearts in celebration and hope in the, the coming of this long-awaited promised king. But Psalm 24 also goes a step further, announcing not just the king's arrival, but, but showing us what kind of man this king will be and who he is. I'm just going to give it away up front. Spoiler alert. This promised king is King Jesus. So let's, let's read Psalm 24 and, and we'll dive in. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is he? This king of glory. The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. This is God's holy and inspired word. Amen. Well, we aren't given the exact context of this psalm, uh, but it's likely it was composed for, uh, for a processional into the city of Jerusalem where, where Yahweh's, the, the, the covenant God of Israel's kingship, was celebra celebrated. And the probable historical occasion is 2 Samuel 6, uh, when you'll remember David had the Ark of the Covenant brought back into Jerusalem, and then he, he danced before the Lord. So the Ark was, was where the Ten Commandments and other important artifacts in the life of Israel were kept. Uh, but, but most importantly, the Ark was a symbol of God's actual presence among his own people. And that's what the psalm, that's what David in the psalm so clearly and, and plainly celebrates. 
that the holy creator, Yahweh himself, has come down to dwell with his people because of the covenant that he's made with them. So verses 1 to 2 bring us, bring us right back to the beginning as, as earth itself pre- prepares for the king's arrival. Then in verses 3 to 6, uh, David's going to focus on the people as they, they, they're prepared for the king's arrival. And then in those final four verses, 7 to 10, the king himself finally arrives, triumphantly entering the holy city. And all of this, I think, is meant to drive home in our hearts the main idea of this song. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a theme that resounds uh, across the entire Bible. And that is this. Our glorious king on high has come to bring his people into his holy presence. So seek his face with gladness. Our glorious king on high has come to bring his people into his holy presence. So seek his face with gladness. We're going to unpack this by, by considering how David moves us from the realms of the Lord's transcendent holiness as our creator to his triumphant homecoming as our savior king. So two points we're going to walk through this morning. Point number one, the king's transcendent holiness. We'll, we'll see that in verses one to six. And then point number two, the king's triumphant homecoming, verses seven to ten. So point number one. So this psalm opens up by declaring that the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. The the first two lines of verse one, they parallel one another, and they're meant to emphasize the, the, the comprehensive scope of God's ownership of creation. Nothing falls outside of his domain. All creation, every creature belongs to him. He owns it all. So when, uh, when we moved to the area uh, last summer and we bought our home, uh, one of the things I was really interested in was, was how the property lines to our house fell. Uh, so you can't tell where our property lines fall clearly just by looking at our yard. So we had to go to the title to see what belongs to us and, and what belongs to the neighbors, right? Okay, so does the creek uh, and the tree line, does that belong to us? Does that belong to the neighbors? Is the easement ours? These are all things I wanted to know. Well, in verse, verse 1 of, chapter, of, of Psalm 24, David is showing us God's property lines. It's as if he's pulling up Google Earth on his phone to show us what belongs to God. And the image that comes back doesn't just show uh, some lines around a few little acres over here or a plot of land over here or, or even a whole state or a whole country or an entire region of the world. No, these lines are drawn clearly, boldly, definitively around the entire globe. So we have to zoom in on Google Maps to see our property lines to our house, right? God has to zoom all the way out, right? He, he just keeps going further and further, hitting that magnifying glass until it zooms all the way out, right? All of it, all of it belongs to him. Everything inside those lines is his, Right. The, the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper famously put it like this. There is not one square inch, one square inch in the whole of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Brothers and sisters, God owns it all. He owns it all. He owns it all because he created it all. 
That's where David goes in verse 2. He grounds the claim of God's complete ownership in the fact that God is the one who laid the foundations of the dry land on top of the watery surface way back in Genesis 1. So standing behind these these opening verses is the, the creation account in those opening chapters of Genesis. This means that, that God's kingship, his rule and reign are comprehensive, universal. They, they span every little nook and cranny of creation. There's no realm that he doesn't claim as his own. No plot where his sovereignty doesn't reign supreme. No corner or crevice where he will fail to enforce his will. And this means that everything that calls our planet home belongs to the God of the Bible. No creature, nothing is autonomous. And that includes us. That includes us. All humans in all places across all times belong to this God. He made us, and so he owns us. Because God created the world and all its inhabitants, he has the right to make the rules. And therefore, we are accountable to him as our sovereign creator. This is why in Genesis 1, God creates. And then in Genesis 2, he tells Adam what he can and can't do. And then in Genesis 3, God holds Adam to account after he sins. All right, of course, our, our culture today inverts this, completely inverts it, just, just as the pagan nations did uh, in the day that this psalm was written. So instead of, of saying with David, the the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. The lie that we are told today is the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to us. They belong to me. Right? This, this was the lie the serpent told Adam and Eve in the garden, and this is the lie that we tell ourselves, right? that it's my world. It's my world. Everybody else just living in it. Our MO ever since the fall has been to to try and redraw those property lines that so clearly belong to God as our creator. We do this either by, by denying him as our creator outright or by living like we're free to do what we want, when we want, however we want to do it. We live like we are totally autonomous, our own little kings and queens who have free reign and complete domain over our lives, over over our bodies, over our possessions, our time, our money, and our planet. But right here, God in his word confronts us, and he says, nah, nah, I'm the king. The earth and everything in it, including you, belong to me. I own you because I made you. Which means that none of us, none of what we think we own actually belongs to us in the end. If what David asserts about God in verses 1 and 2 is true, then that means whatever the Lord has put in our possession, whatever the Lord has given you, whether it's your house, uh, from your homes to your bodies, to your jobs, to your families, uh, to Uh, to the gender that you were born with. All of it ultimately belongs to him and he gets to decide what we do with these things. Because at the end of the day, we are all just borrowing 
we're all just borrowing what really belongs to our creator. We're, we're the stewards, we're the managers of our holy creator's trust fund, which means that we have our very lives on loan from him. We own none of it. And this ought to affect what we do with all of the stuff, all of the things, everything that God has given to us, put in our hands to honor him and to reflect his glory as our creator. Everything from from how we enjoy the world he's made to how we treat other human beings to, to what we do with our bodies. Because we don't finally own any of the things that we think we own. This is God's world. This is God's world, and we're just living in it. And one day, we will have to answer to him for what we did with his property. Which is why David naturally moves from the heights of creation in verses 1 to 2 to the heights of his holiness in verses 3 to 6. Because to to be transcendent as creator, to be the creator, means you get to set the standard of right and wrong. We don't get to decide this. This is God. This is God's work. So this reference in in verse 3 to God's mountain and his holy place uh, would have immediately evoked uh, images of of Mount Sinai, the, the mountain on which Israel entered into covenant relationship with the Lord, and the mountain on which Moses uh, would dwell with God for 40 days and 40 nights uh, back in the Exodus narrative. But it also would have evoked images of of Mount Zion, the place identified with the hill on which the holy city of Jerusalem would stand. And and this would have evoked thoughts of Yahweh's temple, uh, which was considered the very mountain on which God himself dwelled and, and to which all the nations would one day stream. So we go from Sinai to uh, to, to Zion, to the temple, to Jerusalem. All of these things are, are woven together in this question uh, that David asks in verse 3. David's already mentioned this mountain back in Psalm uh, chapter 2, verse 6. He, in Psalm 15, verse 1, he, he, he asks essentially the same question that he asks here in 24, 3. And the whole picture is meant to present the Lord as the incomparably high and holy King of heaven, who is set apart from us in every way as our creator and in his character, which is why David asked this question. This is the natural question for us to be asking after we've just set our eyes on the heights of him as our creator. With the Lord enthroned so high above us, how can sinners like us reach the heights of his, of God's, Yahweh's, dwelling place? How do we get from way down here to way up there? How do we ascend this mountain? We get our answer in verse 4. David gives us the answer in verse 4. Four four qualities that he lists that are needed to get from way down here in our sin to our holy king's presence. Clean hands, a pure heart, true worship, and honest speech. Clean hands, a pure heart, true worship, and honest speech. So these clean hands designate one who is holy in deed and in action. In all of their outward actions, they are undefiled and innocent. They're free from guilt and transgression. But he also talks about this pure heart, 
which refers to inward holiness. So our thoughts, our emotions, our motives, our inclinations, they all must be pure. The righteous one has the kind of heart that Jesus would speak about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The second line of of verse 4 refers to one who has a right relationship to God, who, who has not appealed to what is false. This has to do with our worship of God. He The righteous one worships the true God, not idols. He worships Yahweh alone in spirit and in truth. And then that last line of verse 4 speaks to the the rightness of this man's relationship to God and to others. He's an honest person. He's an honest person who who only deals in the currency of the truth. He's not not trading in, in deception or untruths, trying to deceive others or the Lord for some kind of self-motivated agenda. This kind of comprehensively righteous person, David says, is the one who may ascend the mountain of the Lord. He's the one, verse verse 5, verse 5, who receives blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Only this kind of person can approach the mountain of the Lord and not get utterly consumed. So let's, let's just review for a moment. Let's step back and review for a moment the movement of this psalm so far. So verses 1 to 2, we were in the, the realm of the cosmos. The realm of the cosmos. God's reign over creation in us. Then in verse 3, we moved to the Lord's mountain. To Sinai, Zion, Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, the temple, the holy place of God. All these images pointing to the dwelling place of Yahweh. And then in verse 4, verse 4, we get this one. We get this singular figure, singular figure who, who seems to pursue God in faith and in purity, one who embodies these qualifications that give him access to the, the presence of God. And then in verse 5, this same one, the same one described in verse 4, on the basis of his faith in God, receives you see that word in verse 5? He receives. He doesn't earn. He receives as a gift blessing and righteousness from God. That's, that's huge. That's very, very important. The language David uses in verse 5 shows us that this man is not justified or vindicated by God on the basis of the holy life that he's lived. His holy life isn't the reason he receives righteousness from God. Instead, because he has turned his face toward God in faith, he graciously receives righteousness from God as a free gift of God's grace. And then in verse 6, verse 6, the real shocker comes. Because the righteousness of this one man, this one man, now spreads to what? A whole generation of people. The life and the blessing that belonged to this one man have now, it seems, been transferred and applied to the many. And it's not just transferred to all people or all kinds of people, but to a certain kind of people. The people get qualified. It's those who seek the face of God, who seek after God. 
So notice what's happening here. Notice what's happening here because this is huge for our understanding of the whole psalm. We started with a description of one man, one man who was worthy to enter God's presence. And now we've moved to an entire generation of the righteous. In the span of just two verses, two verses, we've gone from one man man standing on the Lord's holy mountain to a whole generation of people who are now worthy to take up residence there. Somehow, somehow the surpassing righteousness of this one man has brought about a righteous generation who is made like him and who seeks after the face of God and faith. We were down here, and now suddenly there's a whole generation of people who have made the journey up here with this man. So the question we're left with, the question we're left with at the end of these these first six verses is how in the world does this happen? How does such a thing happen? How is it that this one righteous man multiplies into a whole generation? What qualifies him to stand in the place of the many and to thereby thereby qualify the many to stand now in the presence of God? Who is this guy? Who is this guy? That's the question. Well, I want us to put a pin in that important question for just a moment. Because before we can answer that question, we first need to look at these verses, uh, verses 7 to 10. So hang on to that question. Verses 7 to 10, point number two, the king's triumphant homecoming. The king's triumphant homecoming. So in in these verses, the people who have sought the Lord now celebrate the entrance of the king into the city of God. Uh, it's the obvious climax of the psalm as the king that people, the people have been waiting for finally arrives. So the, the people erupt into this kind of back and forth call and response, uh, announcing the king's arrival and his identity. Twice the king's herald commands the city gates to lift up their heads and, and, and then commands the doors to rise up so that this king can come into the holy city. Uh, it's as if the, the herald who's thrilled with the good news of the high king of, uh, of heaven who's, who's come at last, he cannot stop shouting for these doors to be, to be opened and to swing, swing wide. And notice, notice how the psalm describes, notice how the psalm describes these gates and doors. They're personified. So gates don't have heads, and doors don't rise up. It's as, if, it's as if, though, these gates and doors almost have like drifted off to sleep. Their heads drooping from waiting so long for this king to come. They're, they're like a night watchman who can't keep his eyes open any longer, head in his hands, wondering if daylight, if the end of his shift is ever going to come. And at long last, it does. It does. And so the herald of the king shouts, wake up, open your eyes, lift up your heads, you sleeping gates, for your king has finally arrived. Who is this king of glory? We hear in response in verses 8 and 10. The answer, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, the Lord of armies, he is the king of glory. And this This right here is another point of major surprise in this psalm. 
for the king of glory. This king of glory is presented as none other than Yahweh himself. The covenant God of Israel, he's the one who shows up. Three times the psalmist tells us that the identity of this king of glory is Yahweh, is the Lord himself. And notice how he's described. He's presented as this divine warrior, a a king who is undefeated in battle, victorious, strong, and mighty, a conquering king who is returning from war. But why draw our attention to these qualities? Why? What has Yahweh even been fighting for? Better yet, who? Who has Yahweh been fighting for? I mean, if, if these gates and doors, if they represent the entry points into Jerusalem and the temple, which symbolize the very presence of God, and, and they've been shut, but now they're being told to open, well, then something massive, something cosmic even, must have gone down out on that battlefield, battlefield, right? So think of, think of what happens at the end of Genesis 3. Right after Adam and Eve sin, they're cursed. And, and what does God do? He drives them out of the Garden of Eden, cut off from God's presence by their sin. And then he places a cherubim and a flaming sword that kept them, that would prevent them from coming back in. A giant keep out sign posted right there at the entrance to Eden, the gates closed, the doors slammed shut. And now, now this king of glory shows up and the gates and the doors are told to swing wide open. Suddenly, suddenly what was inaccessible now becomes accessible again. And who makes this possible? Who's the one who does this? Who's the the one who wins this war? It's Yahweh, the holy creator king himself. And this this is really surprising because back in verses three to five, we were expecting a righteous man. We were expecting a righteous man to be the one who would enter the holy place. But these verses announce the Lord himself as the king. And notice who's with them. Did you, did you pick up on this? Verse 10. This king, Yahweh, he's at the head of this processional. An entire army of troops marching behind him, spilling out behind him over that ridge as he, as he crosses it. Okay, well, well, where did these armies come from? And what gives them the right to enter these gates with the king? Well, it can only be that generation of those who sought his face back in verse 6. And this brings us back to the identity of the man David introduced to us back in verses 4 to 5. See, David, David at one level, David understands himself to be the Lord's king who stands at the head of the Lord's people as the Lord's representative. He, he understands himself. David, David has a kind of relative righteousness. And, and the people who align themselves with him join him in, their, in his devotion to the Lord. 
This is what we see happening back in 2 Samuel 6, when, when David leads the ark uh, of the Lord back into Jerusalem, and he blesses the people. He blesses the people in the name of the Lord of armies. Lord of armies, same, same reference here. So it was through David's righteousness that, that God's people enjoyed God's presence in their midst as their king uh, brought the ark back into the city. But Psalm 24, Psalm 24 ups the ante big time for us. For it envisions the people needing a king even greater than David. A king not with relative righteousness, but comprehensive righteousness. One one who can boldly enter God's presence because of his unblemished life. One so righteous that that he can justify and vindicate sinners. One who, who makes those who seek his face like him in his holiness so that they can enter the city gates with him. And so we join, we join with the anthem of Psalm 24, crying out, who is this king of glory? Who is this one who secures victory and blessing and righteousness from God for all who would seek his face and follow him in faith? Who is this man who who dares wake up these gates and open these doors? Who is he? Who is this king of glory? It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the very incarnation of God himself, Emmanuel, God with us, come down to bring all who seek the face of God into our creator's holy presence. And just just think about where this psalm has taken us. We started in the majestic realm of the cosmos with the Lord as our creator and the one who sets these rules. Then we move to the heights of his holiness, his moral perfection, us looking up at God high on his holy mountain, cut off from him. But God doesn't leave us hopeless and helpless there. In the fullness of time, the God of our salvation comes down to rescue us, taking on the likeness of humanity, sending one who meets all of his righteous moral standards, one who identifies with us and fights for us and then applies his righteousness to us. And this one, Jesus Christ, he he did this by giving up his life as a ransom for many, taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve, taking our sin upon his shoulders on the cross. But then God vindicated him by raising him from the dead, defeating death and sin through the power of his resurrection so that all who would seek his face, seek the face of this king through faith and repentance might receive blessing and righteousness from the Lord. And now as our living and reigning king, King Jesus arrives to ascend his throne and he's got a multitude with him, a multitude with him. All the redeemed, those he's purchased by his blood, marching in triumphant procession with him. This this is the salvation that Psalm 24 celebrates. 
This is who the psalm champions as the king of glory. This psalm then is God's invitation to us to receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation through the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. So friend, if if you're here and you are not a Christian, then lift up the gates and open the doors of your heart so that this king of glory might come in. Bend the knee, bend the knee to King Jesus in faith and repentance. He's a welcoming king, a forgiving king, a a glorious king who longs to bring you into his presence. So receive him as your king. Receive him as your king. And if you've done that, if you've received Jesus as your king, then your response is to glory in him and to celebrate this victory that he has won for you. Verses 7 to 10 is, it's the battle cry of the church. This is our victory song, our our processional march here. In Christ, we have become a people for his own possession, so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who has taken us from way down here into his holy presence way up here. And this psalm, David, David is loud. David is loud about what this king of glory has accomplished for his people. The same should be true of us. We should be a loud people. A loud people about the goodness and the glory of King Jesus. One way I, I think we can apply this as a church is just by simply opening up our mouths and talking about what the Lord has done for us more, especially, especially with, with other church members. Our Bible studies, our small groups, our discipling relationships, our friendships, our, our dinner parties that we have, our board game parties that we have. Um, I know we like board games in this church a lot. All of these relationships that we have, they should They should increasingly be marked by an eagerness to talk about how the Lord has saved us, how God is currently at work in our lives, about what he's teaching us, how he's conforming us more and more into the image of of our king. Does this describe you? Does this describe the conversations that you you are having with one another? Is the goodness and the glory of of King Jesus the driving drumbeat of your conversations in this church? I'm not saying that we can't ever talk about other things, but what does it say about us if our king rarely ever comes up in our conversations? One simple way you can apply this today is just at the end of the service, right when Dick is finished giving the benediction. Turn to the person sitting next to you. If you don't know them, introduce yourself. And then just ask them to share one way today's sermon passage, one way Psalm 24 increased their delight in Christ. Just one way, one way their affections for Jesus were 
were set aflame by Psalm 24. A hundred, a hundred little conversations. That's what we could have today and hear about 15 or 20 minutes. A hundred little conversations, all proclaiming the excellencies of our glorious King. Have that conversation first, then talk about what you're doing for Memorial Day tomorrow. But don't just talk about our King. Don't just talk about the King. Actually, walk Him out in your life. We were once cut off. We were once cut off from the mountain of the Lord because of our sin. But now, now by virtue of our union in Christ, we've been justified, vindicated, made righteous, qualified in every way to go up that hill. This is how Paul, Paul encourages the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, 1 to 4. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul's telling us, don't live down here anymore because you've moved up here. You've moved up here. You've taken up residence up here in Christ. This is who you are. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then you have been raised with Christ and you now live with him in the heavenly places. You share a home address with King Jesus in the heavenly places. And you now live and dwell, and your life is wrapped up in his. So celebrate. So celebrate. Celebrate your moving day. Give your king the glory and the honor that he deserves. And do that by living like the new person that he's made you to be. Apart from Christ, these verses did not apply to you, but now this is your song. So live out, live out those clean hands and the pure heart that Christ has gone to war to win for you. Put to death the false worship, the deceitful speech that he put to death when he died for you. This doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect this side of heaven, but it does mean that the more you grow, the more you grow in seeking the things of God, the more you will be putting on this new man. And the more you will be putting off and putting to death the things that once separated you from God. And don't try, don't try to reverse engineer yourself into this righteous man by your, by your own strength or by your own merits. Instead, lean into the righteousness secured for us by the God who has saved you and supplied you with his spirit. For the same God who has laid the foundations of the earth upon the seas is the same God who helps us in our weakness. Remember, remember that he fights for you and he won't stop fighting for you until he finishes the good work that he started in you. He's the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, strong in battle. So stay vigilant, stay vigilant in your fights to put to death anything anything that steals your joy in Christ. And then seek his face with gladness, with gladness, knowing, knowing that those who submit to Christ as king will become like him in glory. For one day soon, one day soon, brothers and sisters, 
our king of glory will arrive in triumphant procession. And all of those who have sought his face will call out from among his army, lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. And those sleeping gates will awaken. And the ancient doors will swing wide open. And King Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, the king of glory, will make sure every single last one of his sheep makes it home. Let's take just a moment to ponder the beauty and the wonder and the goodness of our King of glory.